Today, I'm very delighted to introduce our speaker, um, Michael von der Schulenberg. He is former UN Assistant Secretary General um, in Political Affairs. He has um, 40, so, sorry, 34 um, years of experience <laughs> working for the UN, but also the OSCE. And he was in many of the world's travel um, spots, and that includes Haiti, includes Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, and Sierra Leone. He also had assignments in Syria, Somalia, the Balkan, and in Sahel. So he really has in-depth, on-the-ground knowledge of um, all those conflicts that, that we are studying. And he's experienced in a range of different UN activities that include both the development side, the humanitarian side, but obviously also political affairs and peacekeeping. And most importantly, he's also a former CCW visiting fellow. So without any further ado, I'd like to give you the floor. Yeah, and thank you very much. Thank you for arranging it, and thank you very much for you all to come. You know, the argument I want to make today is that the time of wars among states is basically finished. That's at least what the statistic indications are. What we have to deal with in the future, especially for now, is all intrastate wars. Now, intrastate might be a misconception because it goes across often across the border, because it defined as wars between government and non-state actors. Non-state actors may often be being non-state actors on the non-recognized borders. So we have often this being regional, but it has a character of intra-state wars. What I want to say in this one is, although it has become so dominant, and I think in future it will become even more dominant because of climate change, because population increases, because of uh, in economic inequalities, because of uh, 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 limited resources and so on. We will very soon be 11 billion people on the earth. But I think this type of conflict will even take more shape. The second argument I want to make, and that's really where I want to spend my time on, is that we have not found in a response how to deal with intrastate armed conflicts. That's at least what I would argue. I'm sorry. So I will talk to you in three levels. First, I will tell you what I think is really the difference between wars among states to wars within states. The second thing is I will look at the main sort of typical interventions we do in intrastate wars and why they, none of them really is successful. And finally, I will make some conclusions. Why is it that we haven't found any answers to the things? And what I suggest, what has to be done in the future? I want to emphasize that the first two points, I would call, you might not agree with it, but I would call analytical, so they are non-political. Whatever you think politically, I think that is a conclusion, my view, you have to come to. So the discussion will be only on the technical grounds. The last point is only political. And I hope by this time you have not all left the room and you listen to me what I have to say in my last things on the political. Before I start this one, I wanted to make three points about my presentation because we're here in Oxford. I'm not an academic. I'm coming from the practical world. And so I have not made a proper research on all these interstate conflicts and made some statistics on the whole thing. Uh, all what I do is basically having been 34 years in one war country and the other. So whatever I accumulate as a knowledge. And I will also bring here mostly examples from countries I've actually been into, not countries I only have sort of discussed or things like this one. 
But I will still say that by all the diversity we have in this in each war, our conflict is of course very different. Uh, that what I'm saying, I would argue, and I hope you argue that I'm wrong, but I think I want to take a position on this one, that these points are applied to all interesting conflicts in one way or another. And I can only say that's based on experience, not based on academic research, but that's why we have CCW, and I will say something in the end about CCW. Uh, this, this last point I want to make, that I will very often speak about we, and I usually, in many presentations I get that I get the really fuck we mean we, we, it's not us and things like this one. But I want to emphasize that also the critique I have, of course involves me too. I was also believing that certain things would happen a certain way, and I was actually also an agent for all these type of things. So I was part of this whole thing, and also therefore part of the development of the thinking. So I, when I speak about me, I generally mean the West. That is NATO plus countries. It is not, it's a critique of the West, it's not an anti-Western. The final conclusion for me is that we have to change our policies because the world has so much change how we deal with conflicts around us. Let me first say a few things about, now I use the first time in my life a PowerPoint. You know, when I was in Iraq, I said always to the American um, military, you have lost the war in Iraq on bench, benchmarks and PowerPoint presentations because you can't meet an American journal without immediately coming with a PowerPoint presentation. So I'm allergic to it. But since you paid for my flight, I think I have to bring something up. So this is, a, this is a, a, a table which comes from the Uppsala Conflict Data Program. They usually are the people who sort of register uh, armed conflicts or wars. And it's very interesting when you see that it starts from the end of the first, uh, Second World War to almost today. You see that the blue line, we don't have anymore these type of wars, these are basically colonial wars, uh, there's, there are none anymore. But the brown thing, that is wars among states. And you see there are less and less. We always think that this is actually our problem. Whereas this one and the gray one are all interesting wars. This one is where the wars are without foreign interventions, this is where we have a foreign intervention. But they're all interstate. So you see already by, this is only numbers, how many wars the fight is having, I think 25 deaths per year or more. Uh, that's simply the numbers and you see that. But what is not in such a statistics, and very often statistics of course lie in a certain way, is of course one thing is doesn't reflect, and that is a Cold War. Up to this time, we had a Cold War. Now, we had always assumed these are proxy wars, these interesting wars. But they were no longer proxy wars from here on. And the interesting thing is, if I remember that at the time of the UN, what we had expected in the political department is that with a, uh, with a breakdown of the dualist system between the uh, Soviet system and, uh, and, and the Western system, the grip on countries will end. When you think, for instance, on the Sierra Leone conflict, no? America didn't want to intervene anymore, and blah, blah, blah. We can talk for hours why this all went wrong. Uh, we thought it will increase the wars among states. They were suddenly free to settle their borders, their conflicts, their, their rights, groups, resources, and, and so on. But it did not happen. That's really astonishing what happened that actually interstate wars increased. Now, they will tell us why. But it's simply a fact of life 
that intrastate wars yesterday are a big issue, not wars among states. And for anybody who wants to criticize the UN, should not forget the UN was created only to prevent wars among states, never intrastate, and that we don't have any wars anymore. That is actually also something to do with the UN Charter. How do I get now to the second ne next one? This is your technically. Do you want me to this? Just click on the red one. Ah, this is very difficult to read, but it's also a, a table from them. This is, looks now at the time uh, post Cold War. And what you see, this blue line here, these are people killed. Because you can say, okay, we have so many wars, but many of these wars kill very few people, though, and they're very sad, but they're not very important. How many people killed? An indication of the intensity of wars. Now, you see that it is since 2004, completely flat. Never happened in history before for such a long time. What we really have is the second Gulf War and the first Gulf War. What this one is, this is basically the Eritrean Ethiopian um, <coughs> conflict which killed a lot of people. In my definition, I would have put it under, under interstate conflicts because this is a war after they separated from one country where they fought over the, still fought over the borders. It's a typical follow-up on a conflict which is actually interstate. It only happened that then both became members of the UN, and then statistically they would fall into this line. But from the whole type of conflict, this should really be there. And then you see the typical, the, the, the traditional wars among, among states with proper armies, there were only these little heaps since then. So, so since the end of the Cold War, Wars among states have basically not like non-existent anymore, or not, not a prime thing. And that's the first time in human history that inter-state wars, of course, always existed. But it's the first time that two things happened, that they are now becoming the sole concern for security. And the second thing is that what happens in interstate conflicts because of globalization will affect us all. Before what happened in Ethiopia, what happened maybe in, after the revolution in Russia, really didn't touch us too much. But what happens now, it will touch us all. So it has become, interstate, the issue for international peace and security. Now, let me say a few things about the differences. And I, this, is, uh, this is the most stupid thing of doing things like this one, because you can't read it, but maybe people want to have afterwards uh, some of them. I will today talk not how to prevent wars or armed conflicts. I will only talk how to respond once interstate war or wars emerge or sort of explode into full, full wars. So the response to something that already happens, that's very important. Prevention would be a completely different thing. Now, what do we do if we have wars? I call wars always interstate and armed conflicts it's, uh, inter between states and among states. The biggest issue is that when you want to end a war among states, you separate armies and you separate populations. That usually comes along because it's usually along the borderline anyway. You cannot do that in intrastate wars. How do you bring peace to Aleppo? You have the Christians, you have Sunni, Sunni uh, 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 Muslims, uh, uh, Sunni Arabs, you have uh, Shiite Arabs, you have all sorts of different religions and groups in there which fight each other. 
you have to find a way to integrate this. And that is far more difficult than this one. And because of this one, when you look, for instance, at all the UN peacekeeping operations which deal with wars, and they were basically only in the first, uh, before the Cold War, they were all ceasefires. You have not a single peace agreement among them. Here, we always have tried to achieve a peace agreement. A peace agreement because we had to find a way how people who fought each other before can live together without killing. They're often neighbors. We shouldn't forget this. But Yugoslavia. The other problem is when we want to end this. In this war, and I, I come afterwards, Iran-Iraq war on here in Sierra Leone, that was a negotiations between governments. So you had people who had the unique authority <coughs> over what is decided. Usually two, sometimes more, but Iran-Iraq was only two. So the negotiation was government to government. Here, it's very unclear. First of all, it's government, non-government actors. And there are often several ones of them, also from the government side. On the government side, you have very often today also illegal uh, militia forces and things like this one. So the whole thing becomes extremely complicated. And on this type of war, the military command and control structure is relatively clear and reliable. If Iran decides to end the war, it ends the war. Because their military structure, they will have internal problems and things like that, it's not all that easy. But it, there is a clear military command control structure. You will never have that on this side. And this comes back to the peace agreements, why peace agreements fall so, so quickly apart. This is a clear issue of which we don't know how to deal with. The other thing is international law. You see, <coughs> in wars among states, we have a clear international law, or relatively clear international law. It's a UN Charter, it's a humanitarian law, and so on, and many other. It's somehow defined. And these countries or these governments, they are a member of these international conventions. They might not abide to them, but they are still a member of it. Once you come to the other type of conflict, you have a lot of parties which, which would not recognize international law because they have never signed up to it. Mm -hmm. They say that's a Western thing, that's, you know, whatever, that's to, to push us down, whatever. There is no international law for interstate armed conflicts. We try somehow, uh, ICRC, to apply humanitarian law, but it has not gone anywhere, really. It's not automatic, it has applies. <coughs> the IS has never signed the UN, uh, UN man, uh, Human Rights Conventions or humanitarian law. That means very often that the government acts accordingly. No? Does it also goes outside things? The next point, which is so difficult, I say from the point of view from the UN, is the role of the UN, assuming we have the UN. In these type of wars, it depends on impartiality. So in the Iran-Iraq war, we have not bothered what happens politically in both countries. We were focusing on separating the armies and monitoring these sort of things. Impartiality. There was therefore a respect for the UN flag because both sides have agreed that we should do that. And therefore the monitors are very few and very lightly armed. Here, the UN is always party to the conflict. When the, you send peacekeepers into the fray of Mali or other things, 
you're part, you're party of it, even the civilians. And if you remember the bombing of the UN Canal Hotel in Baghdad, actually two bombings of it, it was in a way a legitimate action. I mean, because the Sunni Arabs who opposed what we did and we saw us as being invited by a not legitimate government, which was put in place by the by the by an occupation forces. So we were there illegally in this country, and we would take the side of the government or of the of those. I think it's called administrative council at the time, yeah, uh, of those things and the occupying forces. So we were actually part of the enemy. And if we have always this discussion of before everybody accepted the UN flag, and now they don't do it anymore. I mean, the, the reason is that before we were in, mainly in conflicts between states, now we are in conflict inside states, and we are automatically a conflict party. In Mali, everywhere, we are a conflict party. And of course, the UN is now more armed. We have increased the mandate of peacekeepers that they could forcefully defend the mandate and not only be lightly armed. It has, in my view, a great mistake. Then the second one is, when we get a ceasefire agreement, we never bother about the post-conflict peacekeeping or anything like this one. We just leave these countries. They're not going to India and Pakistan to redo their administrations or we don't give humanitarian aid or something like this one. This, is, this, 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 doesn't, this doesn't exist in this one. Here it does. And we, that means here, a, a conflict always means that we want to reform the government or establish a government, make a security sector reform, a, a judiciary reform, uh, creating human rights commissions and electoral commissions and all these sort of gadgets. And of course, a lot of development aid and a lot of humanitarian aid. Here, often the humanitarian development aid is, is larger than the cost of the human force. In Iran, Iraq, we would never have such a thing. So it worked much better also from the internal UN. UN is, of course, an organization where every department has its own institutional interests. The conflict in Iran, Iraq, among the UN agencies, didn't exist because everybody had their own day. We didn't have anything to development side, nothing to do with them. But now we have to work together. And that's what goes so terribly bad here, is working together among different parts of the UN which have different operating principles and different interests. And we have never solved that. Uh, that's to be the, 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 the time. You know, uh, let me go to the next one. Let me give you this an example, maybe it becomes clearer. Because these are the two things I was involved in, Iran, in the ending of the Iran-Iraq war, and, uh, and of course also the Syria. Typical, ceasefire agreement, accepting of UN Security Council Resolution 598. It was accepted, and the war ended. There was no fighting anymore afterwards, you know? Peacekeepers, there were only 400 of them. 400 of them. No peacekeeper was killed in action during the time because both sides accepted it. The population involved to end the war is 85 million. Those people who were killed, you couldn't get this in enough, uh, who were killed in this war was here about 700,000. Here they were impartial. The UN mission didn't care about the human rights abuses in Iraq or Iran. It was simply not a matter what, what, what happened politically, even when we had our counterpart on the Iraqi side suddenly 
the general and some other disappeared, which we assumed was taken prisoner or not trusted by the Saddam anymore, you would never say a word to it. It was simply focusing on making sure that in certain areas they had to move 20 kilometers from the border, the other 50 kilometers from the border, depending on the type of weapons and things like this one. And that could be easily monitored by them, also by helicopter and things like this one. This was, of course, the last, uh, um, last Cold War uh, things. And, you know, we should not forget our Western, especially U.S. involvement on the Iraqi side. There would never have been a chemical warfare without our technical assistance. And I've seen it on the other side, the results of it. Now, look at Sierra Leone. They, they signed a peace agreement, probably one of the worst peace agreements you could imagine. Huh? And it was also accepted by the parties. But these parties were meeting outside the country, not necessarily what the people thought inside. Uh, we had here, for the country which had a population of only 6 million people, we had 17,000 UN peacekeepers, 17,000, compared to 85 million and 400 peacekeepers. You see how the, the huge differences. In this country, 70,000 people died, that's all estimates. Here, 10 times as many. How likely this whole thing was, how easy it was. And that was peacekeeping actually done for. It was never done for this type of thing. Although we got very early involved in the Congo and things like this one. And of course here, we were part of the conflict. Actually, the UN took over the entire security of the entire country until 2005. All the provinces, all the borders, it was all UN force. There was no police, there was no army anymore. We dissolved police, we dissolved the army. Uh, we uh, decommissioned everybody. The de decommissioning was so successful that afterwards the farmer complained that they couldn't protect their field against animals anymore. And then during the four years I was there, there was only one person killed by a firearm in four years in a country where before killing was basically the thing of the day. It was very successful in a way. But, uh, but it was, of course, enormous. I mean, we, we redrafted the Constitution, we did the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There's a huge, massive uh, humanitarian assistance. Two-thirds of the population had left their villages. They had to be brought back there. I mean, it was a massive operation uh, in addition to the peacekeeper. And, of course, there was all these government institutions. Nothing of what we did here. It is so completely different. And if we read the latest article from... Uh, about peacekeepers, then I think she has never been in these missions. She seems to ignore that. It goes from one type of peacekeeping to the other. She doesn't realize that we're talking about completely different things when we talk about interest state. It's just a sort of a continuum. It is not a continuum. It is a huge break. Mm -hmm. And we, of, of course, tried to introduce a Western model of governance, which was in Sierra Leone until now, at least, and we will very soon have to hope my was quite successful. The number of elections, they've all been well back, and twice changed the political party who is in government. But it happens very, very rarely. So what I wanted to say with these tables, and, these tables, and that's my first point, is we have to understand that we talk about two very, very different things, and that will explain you what I want to say to you next. We can't read this all, but I just said, you know, maybe somewhere. I, I take four issues here and break them each down in two, on which I want to say what we do in intrastate armed conflicts and why it doesn't work. First is military-based interventions, and I will distinguish here between military intervention, direct interventions, like the US or Russia now, uh, peace and peacekeeping. Then I will talk about how we link with local parties 
the legitimacy of the government, and the recognition of armed non-state actors. And then I will speak about the challenges to this new nation-state. Nation, uh, national government sovereignty, the issue of sovereignty, and the issue of uh, self-determination. And finally, I will talk about peace agreements, elections, and the Constitution. If you don't interrupt me before, I mean, <laughs> You see, in the last 10 years, the most severe interventions in interstate conflicts are from military interventions. According to the uh, Uppsala Conflict Peace uh, Conflict uh, Data uh, Conflict uh, Data Program, the conflict UBCP or whatever uh, uh, Uppsala uh, research in 19, uh, 19, in, uh, in 2015 um, 92% or 93% of some of the figures of all those people killed in interstate wars or in wars where in those wars where a foreign power had directly intervened 93% then it went down to 91% and, and last year 2017 the estimate was still 89% so around 90% of all people are killed in those wars we intervene and that has something to do with parties that we maybe intervene in wars that are more important but I think it has a lot to do that by interventions we bring a completely different military uh, 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 equipment uh, to bear, especially the air bombardment. And in Mosul, they, those people killed us by some estimates 40,000, and it's all by air bombardment. Or in Aleppo by the Russians, I mean, whoever does it, I, I don't mind this here, who does it. <coughs> this is uh, the things. Now, if you look at it, there is no international law which justifies that military intervention in interesting I would argue none. Putin would say no, but I would say it pass no. When we when we look at this, uh, I have it somewhere. When you look at the UN Charter here, yeah, this document, it says it forbid. What is so revolutionary about the Charter that it says we should not use military force anymore to solve our conflicts? But it says very clearly it is only. And I have it somewhere. It's only for international relations if the territorial integrity of another state is in jeopardy. That's how they defined conflict. They don't define it as interstate conflict. There is none such a thing. And um, so it is only, the UN Charter is only, and we always forget this, what we do today is not covered by the Charter. The Charter was to prevent wars among states, and we don't have them anymore. So if Russia goes into Syria, or the United States goes into Syria, or whatever, they all do it without a justification. The Charter is even clearer. I don't know why they have not these documents. Um, it's even clearer on the whole thing that it, maybe I it from, uh, than it says. Oh, yeah, yeah. The first, the member states shall refrain from the in the international relations, as a relation with nation states, <coughs> from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. That's nothing, this is not an interesting conflict. Then it says, nothing in the present charter shall authorize the UN to intervene in matters which are essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of any state. That means it has even excluded deliberately that we intervene in interesting conflict. Now, there's always a trick, and that's a trick we used. It's Article 51. 
In Article 51 says, nothing in the present charter shall impair the inherent right of individual or collective, and that's a key word, the collective self-defense if any armed conflict occurs against a member state. And this basically is the right to self-defense. But this one means that if a country is attacked by an outside force, it does not justify that the government says, oh, I have a, an opposition I can't get rid of. Maybe, maybe you come now in and help me to, 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 to deal with this opposition. It's not, not a word of it. We have always used, because in the traditionally it was only the West to intervene militarily, we have always used this argument, saying, but collectively we have the justification the government, uh, government has invited us to become, we have survived, and by the charter. It doesn't say it here. We might now change our mind, because now Russia does the same, uses it, could be mentioned that it does it. Uh, Saudi Arabia does the same, Turkey does the same. I mean, we have many other states. Once the other start, we might have to rethink it our position on Article 51. And especially now that Trump withdraws troops from these countries, and maybe the West is tired of getting militarily involved in other things. So it leaves the field open to others. If they was, would only use the arguments we always have used to intervene in other countries militarily, like in the Balkans, I mean, we would have quite chaos. So I think we have to reformulate this also. Let me come to peacekeeping. The, the early modern is peacekeeping. Now, UN peacekeeping is not foreseen in the UN Charter either. There's no word peacekeeping doesn't exist. No, I don't know. Really? Okay, uh, peacekeeping. No, at the time, we had a great, the UN had a great problem. How can an organization which just rejected armies to, or, uh, to involve in conflicts invite now military? to help them to maintain ceasefires. So they came with a great idea that we have to find people. We don't call them soldiers anymore. We call them peacekeepers, which is already a misnomer because peacekeeper, there was no peace to keep. It was always a ceasefire to keep. Oh, but peacekeeping sounded better, so we called them peacekeepers. But they invented three principles. Impartiality, mutual agreement, and minimum use of force. If you think what I said about the Iran-Iraq war, both governments agreed. We didn't bother what happened politically on both sides. We were impartial. And we were lightly armed. And there were monitors only with side arms. In interstate conflicts, you don't have that. These three principles make absolutely no sense. There is nowhere we would get an agreement from the IS or from, 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 from other uh, opposition groups <laughs> that we could intervene there. We would never have a mutual agreement. And we are never impartial. And of course, we have to be heavily armed. I mean, suddenly you have now tanks and things like this, which I think is a great mistake. So this, what we do now, and we, almost all our interventions now in interested conflicts, we live on guiding principles for us, which makes absolutely no sense. But we have never changed it. Because of a little time, if you go there on this one, they all have the same problem. You know, why elections don't work, why constitutions don't work, why we, why we have a problem of sovereignty. Let's say, so, so, what well, say? Do you know that sovereignty, national sovereignty, is not once mentioned in the UN Charter? Did you know that? Not once. You always say, ah, it's a national sovereignty, or China, or whatever. It's not mentioned. Sovereignty only 
happens is an adjective. It's one says sovereign equality, but it means that all countries have the same say, which they of course don't have, but it's at least these sort of things. But it doesn't say national sovereignty. It doesn't say state sovereignty. So we have made this up afterwards. The charter is far more advanced than we want to have it. The other thing is the whole thing about self-determination, actually invented by Trotsky but then propagated by Wilson in the First World War. It was not one of the 14 points, but basically it was the argument to, to dissolve also the Armenian Empire and the Ottoman Empire to the Germany after the war. But we don't know what it means. It never says it. Will, uh, 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 Woodrow Wilson called it, by the way, self-determination of races. We call it the self-determination of peoples now in the UN Charter. Very difficult, but what, who, people what? And that's a huge problem because many of the non-state actors are uh, separation movements. Let me also take this one very quickly because it's so important. Which government is legitimate? If we intervene, that's a real issue. When does a government is legitimate? When does it lose its legitimacy? Think about Yemen. In Yemen, Saudi Arabia says they are invited by President Hadi to go there. But by that time, Hadi wasn't president anymore. He was ceased to be president in 2012. What happens is that his ambassador still sits in the General Assembly, but it's simply because nobody wanted to make a decision against it, because it's not an important country. But in reality, Hadi is now under, if I understand correctly, under house arrest in Saudi Arabia. How can we say that he justifies us to intervene in the country under Article 51? This is a real issue, but the biggest issue is non-state actors. Nowhere in international law we define non-state actors. How do we deal with non-state actors? This is a huge problem today. If you look at the world of today, I would say up to 50% of the population in this world lives not under governments, but under non-state actors. Think about only one number. It's estimated by 2013 that 50% of all city dwellers live in slums. That is 3 million people. That's not even substandard houses like in the surroundings of, uh, of uh, Marseille or, 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 or Chicago. If we call all these people, who controls them? Not the state. That's a real problem. How do we deal with this? This is going far into the Western societies. Can we really have a society organized, which is very soon 11 billion people, where half of them are organized by principle, which doesn't apply to any international law, to any, any order? This is a real, we have here a huge problem we have to deal with. Now, let me therefore make a conclusion here before I've been shot by, you know, I've already been one injury in my head there. I'll make a conclusion, and this conclusion is a very good thing. Why do you think we have not responded properly to interstate armed conflicts? The reason is, of course, is the end of the Cold War. At this time, I, too, we all believed that we are now the only remaining political system. There's no competition to it. Everybody would overlong accept our system and there's some adaptation or something like this one. It will go all the way. Basically, we had the model how to deal with those states who fail. And the second thing that we had thought, we had the power to do it. We had the economic military power to do this. And I think what we have to realize that the post- Cold War area is finished, and probably the best sign for it is President Trump. It's a finished time. It's not that I like you or anything like this one, but it's a finished time. 
It means we have to find a different model. And while we thought after 91 that we, the West, that we didn't need the UN anymore, we did never spoke about the UN chart anymore. Some people today, the German foreign minister and the, and the German assembly, we like to speak about the rules-based order, which we mean, of course, the order which is ruled by us, a liberal US-led order. But we, there's no global agreement on this. On the UN charter there is. And I would say that we have now, because we have to stop that we intervene in the other countries. We have a problem with a huge population in a chaos that we have to come to terms with, that we have to work with other greater powers, be it Russia, be it China, be it India, uh, be it uh, Brazil or whatever. We have to come to terms. And for this one, there's only one organization that can do it, and that's the United Nations. The Charter of the United Nations was meant for countries with different political systems to come together on, on certain things, to accept that war is not the answer, and to accept that some basic human rights, which is a relationship between states and the citizen. So what I want to say to you, we have, we, and I'm a Christian, that's what I feel and I think of this, we have now an interest suddenly to make the UN work again. Why? Because we have become so weak. Don't forget, NATO is 12% of the world population. The, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is 4% of the <laughs> you can have so many nuclear bombs as you want to, you will not offset this balance. We have to adapt. We cannot dominate the world anymore. We cannot tell them anymore what we do. We cannot have these operations. We call them all operations freedom in all these countries where we kill people. It is not the way we do it. <coughs> On the other hand, I'm also a strong believer that our liberal values, what has developed, been basically developed in the West, you know, like free speech, responsible government, and things like this one. This will slowly go through, but it will not go through with military interventions. It will not go with uh, uh, regime change agendas and things like this one. It will go with the constant of the system. I think that I'm to it because we are about to lose it. Thank you very much. <laughs>